Welcome to the very first episode of Pick Portraits. In this new podcast series, we offer you deep dive conversations with members of the extended Picked family whose life, work, and perspectives have been an inspiration to us. Our goal, as always, is to support but also challenge the Picked community, especially in these pandemic days when we've had to shut our physical doors to the public. We reject the option of online teaching since we believe that critical and creative thinking best happens face to face. But we hope that our podcasts, social media campaigns, and other online offerings will help bridge the gap until we can welcome you in person at one of our courses once again. My name is David Silem Sayers. My guest today is a New York-based photographer, Rose Hartman, and I couldn't imagine a more appropriate conversation partner for a podcast entitled Picked Portraits. Rose first became globally known in the late 1970s when her photographs of the Studio 54 scene in New York City captured celebrities such as Bianca Jagger, Andy Warhol, and Lou Reed in candid poses hitherto unwitnessed by the public. Through this pioneering work, Rose became an inspiration for generations of photographers whose work imitated but never quite managed to equal her blend of fly-on-the-wall documentary style and unique talent for capturing the emotional core of her subject. Since her rise to fame, Rose has published multiple volumes of photography, including Birds of Paradise in 1980, Incomparable Women of Style in 2012, and Incomparable Couples in 2015. She has exhibited in galleries from Beijing to New York City, and her work has been featured in international publications, including the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and Vogue. In 2016, Rose became the subject of a documentary, The Incomparable Rose Hartman, directed by Otis Mass and nominated for more than a dozen film awards, including at the South by Southwest Film Festival, the San Diego International Film Festival, and the Portland Film Festival. Rose, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, it's my pleasure. <laughs> You're so far away, and yet so close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It still fascinates me because probably your uh, listeners would not know that um, I kind of discovered the tech age rather recently. Uh, well, uh, talking about the tech age, I mean, uh, 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 what better way to start than uh, uh, with something that actually comes up in the documentary that was made about you? Uh, 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 the documentary that I just mentioned, uh, there's an unforgettable moment in there that stood out to me like the first time that I was watching it. Uh, and this is a moment when you challenge Otis Mass, the director, on his, <laughs> on his interviewing style. So that is something that I'm trying to be careful about. You, you say to him, and I quote, you're not provoking me in any way, shape, or form. So I feel like I'm just answering you in a perfunctory way. Why would that be interesting to anyone? End of quote. Well, today, for the sake of anyone listening, I will do my best to provoke you in some way, shape, or form. And I have no doubt you will let me know how, how I'm doing on that count. Absolutely, I will. Well, uh, Rose, for this interview, for the sake of this interview, I've taken the somewhat um, dangerous liberty of di dissecting you into three separate Rose Hartmans. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the three Roses overlap and interconnect, but each of them has also managed 
to achieve recognition and notoriety on her own terms. Uh, first comes Rose the artist, uh, specifically Rose Hartman, the pioneering fashion and celebrity photographer. Secondly, there is Rose the personality, and by that I mean Rose Hartman, the decidedly idiosyncratic personality. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, there is Rose the New Yorker, the Rose Hartman who has been a born and raised personification of New York City throughout the second half of the 20th century and, of course, the 21st. So if you will humor me, I'd like you to talk to us about all of these roses in turn. So let's start with Rose the Artist. Uh, you are globally recognized for your remarkable history as a photographic, photographic documenter of fashion and celebrity culture in New York. And while that culture is fascinating in itself, and we will talk more about it later, it wouldn't have been the same without your photographs of it. In a way, you made the culture as much as it made you. Let Let's take, for instance, what is probably your most famous photo, that of Bianca Jagger riding a white horse at her 30th birthday party at Studio 54 in 1977. Many people actually took photos of that scene, but only one photo has become the defining snapshot of that moment, literally and metaphorically. And of course, that is the photo by Rose Hartman. While preparing this interview, my partner, Evrim Emir Sayers, and I spent a lot of time thinking about exactly what it is that makes a Rose Hartman photo instantly recognizable. So my first set of questions con concerns your artistry. Let's turn to your subject first. You're mainly interested in portraiture. Obviously, you have taken many photos of celebrities, but also, and this is less well known, many photos of people who aren't celebrities at all. Uh, nonetheless, Ivrin remarked that everyone you shoot looks like a star, whether they actually, <laughs> whether they actually are a star or not. So my question is, who you, so it's a sort of like a two-part question. Who, yes, firstly, yes. who do you shoot and why? And secondly, is star quality something that your subjects already possess, or is it something that is achieved in your photography? Well, obviously, if I'm walking through Rajasthan, and I see a <clears throat> woman walking with a, a water jug on her head. She is not a celebrity. But something, and this happened, I was in a car being driven by uh, the Indian government uh, driver, because I was doing a big article on visiting India. I jumped out of the car and I took the photo of the woman who was just absolutely beautiful. Clearly, I could not talk to her. I couldn't say, uh, you know, I'm a New York a documentary photographer. But I felt that she stopped and she knew that I would only take something that would be very positive. So I will say that no matter who I'm photographing, again, it could be a fashionista, a young person walking in the street looking very distinctive in her uh, clothing. Um, it's just something that, I have to say, attracts me. If I'm not attracted for that moment, I can't take a good picture. So would it be, do you think it would be appropriate to say that uh the word style describes the thing that you're that you're attracted to. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. In in all these decades that you've been doing this, have you come any closer to a definition of what 
constitutes that style? Originality. And I, you know, I've been interviewed many, many times, obviously, when these books came out. And uh, I would always say, following Diana Vreeland's famous remark, style is the way you go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning. You know, you could be wearing a, a T-shirt for $5 and a pair of jeans, but it's just the, it's just a, the manner that someone projects. And actually... In the past, when I went to parties, I would see some uh, woman at the party and I would say, oh, my God, you know, you're so fabulous. You should really be a model. And then the woman would say, I am. <laughs> because obviously I didn't know all the models and they weren't, you know, they weren't the supermodels. But it's like something you, you should I say, you smell. Um, and you don't know why, but. And also, when I would be at an event, let's say we're, we would both be at Studio 54 and I'd be engaged in conversation with you. But out of the corner of my eye, I would see Diane von Furstenberg sitting on an aluminum banquette with Barry Diller. So I would just kind of swivel around, take that shot of her, maybe just one. And actually, I have seen other pictures of them at the same event but looking rather sloppy, you know, and I would never take a picture that would suggest anything but style, her style, which is very distinctive and always has been. Um, but again, it's, it's just an instinct. And again, very, very few photographs. I don't know if you're aware of that. Even with the Bianca, I think I have two or three. That's it. It wasn't that I was just standing there. And it was the shot seen round the world it, that was in the New York Times, which was very, very, very flattering to me. So, Rose, do you think that? Uh, do you, uh, so, so obviously, you're, you're you're looking to manifest the style in the subjects. Uh, I mean, you you recognize it in the subjects thanks to what you talk about as your as your instinct, as your ph photographic instinct. But it's also something that you that you strive to bring out. I mean, when you were saying earlier about the person that you photographed in India, uh, you said you said that well, you know, I felt I felt that she felt that I would portray her in the in the best or in the most stylish light. Obviously, she couldn't use the word stylish, but she had, um, and I can probably send you the image. It's, it's a really, one of my favorites, actually. Uh, she had perhaps 25 bracelets, and, and you may know this, that would be the dowry. They, the women did not go to the local banks, so their wealth was on their arm. And then, of course, the Rajasthani women just throwing a sari on had such innate style. I mean, it just, I mean, you've seen thousands of pictures of these women and they're, it's, I think they're extraordinary. Do you think that uh, that your subjects, do you think that these are generally people who recognize the style in themselves already? Or do you think that that is something that they might not even be aware of? I don't think the woman who's carrying water in a water jug is aware that she has style. Uh, maybe she was even in shock, but she didn't show it to see somebody come out of a government car. And, uh, you know, in a, in a place like that, where obviously I don't uh, know the uh, language, she would have to perceive that I was not there 
to do anything hurtful. Yeah. So do you think, Rose, do you think that then, do you think there's, an in, there's a difference between uh, the celebrities that you, that, you, that you photograph, people like Diane von Furstenberg, who would very consciously project style, and uh, some person who, kind of like the, the, the Rajasthani person, who naturally, as you said, embodies style. Is there, is there some kind of categorical difference in the style there, or is it the same kind of style? Well, I would say style is style. Yeah. doesn't matter uh, who. That's why I gave that example initially. Yeah. The, the woman who... I don't think she would be reading uh, Indi- Vogue yeah. India. Yeah, style is style. I think that's a, that's a pretty good way of summing it up. And uh, there has to be something about that that is... Uh, I guess there has to be something about that that is intangible and that is not, that is not something that can be captured by analysis. Um, uh, well, you were talking about Vogue magazine, which sort of segues me nicely into the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is basically, as a young girl, I know that one of your first influences was Vogue magazine, for which your mother had a subscription. You've described the publication as my Bible, and you've said that you were drawn to the perfectionism that you saw uh, in the photos. But as you came into your own as an artist, you chose to deconstruct that perfection. You went behind the scenes and you probed your subjects for spontaneity. Uh, one of your famous quotes that I really love a lot is, I want Jerry Hall's soul. Yeah. <laughs> and you said... Yeah, people love that. And I really <laughs> did do and did mean it. And she actually called me. She called me and she said, I want to buy that photo of Diana Breland and... Uh, but I have a budget. Oh. And I said, okay. And I get, I really, because it was Jerry Hall, I was kind of thrilled that she wanted the picture. Then she said, I'll send my driver to pick it up. <laughs> that's it. If that sums up, sums up my career, that would be an example. Right, yeah. I'm on a budget, but I'm going to send my driver to pick up the phone. Yes, yes. And she didn't even think anything was odd in saying that. Well, this is definitely uh, sort of a backstage, uh, a behind-the-scenes uh, uh, tidbit. And I mean, like, you, you, uh, uh, <laughs> yes. well, uh, uh, so, so, so you're interested in the backstage. You're interested in the spontaneous. No, I'm interested in the before, mm. the backstory. Okay. Because I would be um, in the room where the models were getting ready for the shows. Yeah. I was invited. Obviously, I couldn't be there. Otherwise, I'd have a special pass, backstage pass, not with every designer, but a number of designers. And so I could be really the fly on the wall because they were being um, made up and their hair was done and they were getting dressed with the help of um, different assistants. And I love that because I felt that they I would watch them transform. Mm. I wrote this somewhere into hothouse flowers. They came in in a pair of jeans. You know, they looked pretty, but believe me, they didn't look the way they looked when they emerged from maybe a 30 minute, generally speaking, of getting ready. So, Rose, but uh, why do you think that after being so impressed by the perfection that you found uh, sort of in the photos and the magazines, you didn't pursue kind of uh, a career that would have you taking photos that 
create that perfection, but rather you went for the sort of intimate, spontaneous, the before, the preparation of that perfection. Why was that something that as an artist drew you more than creating those images of perfection? Because I can't bear the fact of working in a studio with uh, 10 assistants, as Annie Leibovitz has, for example, or even more. I don't like that group sensibility. I never did. And so, and also, um, I remember taking a lighting workshop once, and I thought, this is ridiculous. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. And so it's just a personal preference uh, to document rather than set up. And in uh-huh. fact, in fact, I hate if I'm taking a picture and of these people, which you haven't mentioned, are so famous and who are photographed all the time and give you a public face. I don't want that. So I will make a comment perhaps to break that down. I can give you an example. Ricky and Ralph Lauren obviously Ralph Lauren being one of the most famous designers in the world, were entering a Lincoln Center for a ballet gala, which I happened to have been invited to. So I was in the the lobby next to them. I turned around and I said to his wife, Ricky, who are you wearing? Well, they broke up laughing. What do you mean who are Who would she be wearing? I mean, it was an obvious question, but I also knew, you know, and that's, that's how I would operate. I would not know what the situation would be, but at that moment, and so I have this wonderful picture of them truly engaging with me for that moment, not posing. So when you look at when you look at those photos, like uh, your photos, and when you put them next to the photos that you admired in Vogue magazine when you were growing up as a little girl, um, do you still sort of crave the perfection in those photos are you happy with the kinds of photos that you're taking would you i mean have you arrived at the point where you're saying well these are nice but i you know i prefer the photos that i'm taking or is it just like apples and oranges of course it's apples and oranges no i'm not comparing uh my pictures i i think i still look at vogue i still get vogue it's not as exciting as it once was and um, I would say Italian Vogue or Paris Vogue are far more interesting because they take many more chances. Um, no, I, no, I've never compared them because I'm showing something, I'm showing another aspect. I, I like to think I'm showing life rather than artifice. Right. And as you were saying, it's the before. So there is a complementarity as a, as a matter of fact between your photos and, 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 and that kind of approach as well. No, it's not necessarily before. It's only before if I'm in a, a backstage at a fashion show. It's during, during. That, again, uh, Diane von Furstenberg is sitting with um, Barry Diller, who, you know, her partner, or would be her partner in the future. This is 1977. She's throwing up her hands. She's just having a good time, and I'm there. And I, and I, by the way, I would just say that I always wore black when I went to studio, and I would dress in very simple um, clothing. 
so that I would not attract any attention. I would I would want to be somewhat stylish, but not the way people who uh, went to studio were over the over the top. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you know, going to talking about going to the studio and taking your taking taking your studio, photo, not the studio to Studio 54. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, you could say to studio and everyone would know it, but you can't say the studio. Well, I'm, I, I, it, it, it does <laughs> seem that I'm going to emerge from this interview much hipper than I was before. Oh, so, hopefully. So. <laughs> <laughs> so w when you were at studio or a comparable place, well, uh, yes. th these places are crowded settings you know clubs parties Very. galas openings but when Very. we look at when we look at your photos that you take in those settings still somehow you manage to isolate your subjects in these settings yeah. and when i was talking to Evrin about this she said uh, uh, she talked about your portraits having the feel of uh, bas-relief sculptures elevating oh my goodness elevating the figure from the background and giving oh. it an almost like tactile uh, quality oh um, i love that. Uh, talking about talking about one of your photos in particular, depicting the model Toko Yamasaki on a crowded oh. New York, yeah, on a crowded street in New York. Ah, this is so interesting that excuse me that you chose that because somebody once came to interview me and I have that photo hanging in my um, apartment. I love it, and the woman said to me, "Of course you set her up in a studio," and I said. No, it was in front of a club called Roseland. She had come from a fashion show. They had used that space. And she was trying to get a taxi. <laughs> uh, and I felt like I said, and the, and the woman, a journalist, didn't believe me. She said, no, no, it couldn't be. I said, yes, yes, it is. So um, I think what Evram had said i'd love her to write something is so interesting to me i never thought about that and i never thought about am i taking a portrait i only think about am i capturing them i i never really use the word portrait which i notice you use a lot to describe my work uh but i mean one of the reasons that i use the use the word is that um you capture something about your subjects that is not only about the subjects themselves but uh the way that you've isolated them in your composition so, so that it seems like they're in the studio right but they're not of course as you were just saying can you can you talk a little bit about this sort of paradoxical it seems to me paradoxical dynamic of having a person alone in the frame, but at the same time somehow capturing that person's tension or chemistry with this sort of party or crowded environment. Hmm. That's a it's a difficult question. Um, I am in some cases <clears throat> observing the person who I wanted photographed. That's the first thing. Yeah. And for example, uh, like with a photo of Daphne Guinness, which I love, she w we were both at some cocktail party in a restaurant in New York after an exhibition. And she just turned and gave me her profile. But I was not next to her. I was actually pretty far away. And you would think, yes, that's a portrait of Daphne. I sent it to someone in London and he said, it looks like a Hollywood star from the 40s because she was covered in a Philip Tracy veil, which is very distinctive. But the bottom line of that was, it, again, it's just something I feel 
I should just take the photo at that moment. I'm not thinking that about tension. That's not in my mind. Got it. Got it. So it's just a, it's 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 part of what you describe as the sort of as as the instinct taking over. Yeah, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. No, but I'm not thinking about the other at all. I mean, it's an interesting notion, but I cannot tell you in fact that that is the case. No. Well, uh, I mean, you, you, you talked about observing, you talked about observing the subject, observing somebody uh, before you take the photo, kind of yes. like taking in their interaction and, yes. and, and taking in their, their, their mood. And before, yes. like at the beginning, since the beginning of this uh, interview, and also in your documentary, you call yourself a documentary photographer. Yes. Uh, someone who's on a safari in the chiffon jungle. Yes, definitely. Uh, uh, Rosalie Goldberg has actually described you as a visual historian who is watching <laughs> culture in front of her. But yeah. when I think about terms like historian and documentarian, especially as somebody who, uh, who is a researcher and scholar himself, these terms, yes. these terms imply a distance between the observer and the observed <laughs> that I don't really think applies in your case. In fact, uh, uh, yes. another person commenting on your body of work, Manuel Santolises, has said about you that you aren't just waiting for something to happen and that to the contrary, you actually want to be part of that moment in New York. So maybe the best way to describe you then is sort of analogous to an anthropologist applying the technique technique of participant observation. Somebody who observes, but who has to participate immersively in order to observe efficiently. Do you think that would be an accurate description? Well, I think, you know, going back to my earlier career as a high school English teacher, I certainly knew that there was something else that I wanted to be involved in. And somebody once said, yes, you want to be at, you want to be in the place where all the most important people in the world are gathering. (laughs) And so I became a photographer. I, I probably didn't plan that out in my brain, but you know I love being um, at a benefit when Jackie Onassis was the chairperson, and literally it was in a form of it was in a police station, <laughs> but they used the the space for uh, some dinner party, and I was very close to her, and she looked t- towards me opened her eyes very widely, and I think I took two or three pictures. That was it. And I love that. I can't tell you I didn't. I, You know, and nobody would... That's another thing that you haven't really touched upon. When I was doing all these photos from, let's say, 1977 onward, there weren't people... There weren't security people, let's say, with Jackie... She was at this very private function for a a choreographer, and that's why I was there, because I knew him very well, and he invited me. There was always some mm -mm, little connection, or I would know the publicist. Uh, One publicist might say, no, 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 we have uh, enough photographers. Another would send me a fax. Please come to the blah, blah, blah. So you didn't have all of the interference, which I detest, or you didn't have people standing in front of, posing in front of signs saying Corona beer. (laughs) 
exactly. Well, I, I don't think anybody's going to be standing in front of that particular sign anytime no, soon. No, I don't think so, and but, I don't think they'll ever drink at that beer again. <laughs> but, but I mean, when, when you were talking about um, your earlier career as an English, as a high school English teacher, that is actually yeah. something that I did want to touch upon, because as someone who's a teacher myself, I know that when you teach, you become part of a group of people, you interact with them sometimes quite intimately, and yeah. you have their attention, but still you aren't really one of them. There are things that set no. you apart from them. You, oper you operate on an assumption of safe distance. Do you, yeah. think that, do you think that that's a sort of, and, and uh, you seem to be agreeing with me right now. <laughs> so I'm just going yes. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just to spin this on a little bit. And I'm, I'm just going to ask you whether you think this is an attitude that you carried over from the classroom, mm. from the classroom to studio. Whoa. Um, you know, I, I, I've often, well, I, yeah, I, I didn't interact with the students, for example, uh, after the day, after the classes. I didn't participate. And I do remember, though, I think I was at studio or another club, and I was dancing, and then there was somebody who was a student, and he said, hello, and somebody said, who is that? And he said, my teacher. That was the only time that literally I saw somebody outside of that setting. Um I I do think, or I've thought that, that there was a separation between me and the subjects because everyone would ask me, well, are you friends with Blaine Trump? You know, the uh, <laughs> sister-in-law of the president. And I'd say, no, no. I photographed her and I took beautiful photos and she sent me, she just sent me a, a lovely message saying, you know, you're a fantastic photographer. Uh, but the point being, I'm not, I'm not being invited to her home in Palm Beach, thank you. <laughs> right. And that's a very big point because no one understands that because maybe the photos do look intimate. The photo yeah. that I'm talking about with Blaine Trump, she was with this actress, Linda Carter, and they were in these spectacular gowns and they were at the Metropolitan Museum, Museum Gala. And you can see when you look at the PDF of incomparable couples, because remember, the couples are friends, lovers, mother and child, etc. Um, they were just laughing, and you could see the relationship between them that was very close and beautiful. And so that's why she loves that photo so much. Obviously, she's been photographed a billion times and always posing, posing, posing. Yeah. So, so I would say, in a way, yes, there is the, the distance actually helps you, in a way, to, to capture the intimacy of the moment, perhaps uh, more than being part of that crowd would actually uh, enable you to mm. Well, since I don't think... Um, that's a, it's a very difficult question. Um, yeah, there would definitely be a distance, yes, I, I will say that. Oh, wait, oh... There's a di di I'm not one percent. I I mean, we'll start there. Yeah. Well, talk. I mean, you're not just not the one percent. Talking about distance, I also have to remark that if we look at your if we if we look at your life, sort of in general, we see that you're actually quite a solitary person. 
I mean, you know, you've stated that you preferred life as an only child before your brother was born. Right? We better not say that in case he gets the link. Well, he, he probably already watched the documentary, right? Yes, he did. Yes. <laughs> and yes, it, and he, yes, he uh, was in it, wasn't he? He was. And in the documentary, you also say that you, you don't really like to be with anybody for that many hours. Right. And you right. also say repeatedly, actually, that you must have chosen, you must have chosen somewhere in your life to be on your own. Well, this is sort of, this is the private Rose Hartman. But on the other hand, your productivity as a photographer depends on intense socialization and face-to-face interaction. Yes. I mean, yes. And this is not just true for the moments where you actually take your photos, but also for your overall pattern of social interaction. I mean, the last time that we got together face-to-face in New York City at St. Ambrose in the West Village, yes. uh, I remember we were just walking out of the restaurant and in the blink of an eye, you spotted Julian Schnabel at another t- <laughs> table and you congratulated him on his new exhibition at the Pace Gallery. You were yeah, just able to God. sort of take that information out of your mental Rolodex and just yeah. apply it in yeah. the moment. How does one get to be such a private person uh, uh, as an individual, but at the same time so gregarious and so uh, outgoing and such a socializer when it comes to the, the professional context? How does that work? That's a very, very provocative question. Well, specifically regarding Julian, I had been invited to his opening um, you know, in Chelsea. So obviously I was quite well aware of it. I didn't go because that was just the beginning of the pandemic. And I was a little nervous about going into a, I knew it would be a hugely crowded uh, situation. Um, but I do spend a lot of private time reading about everything that's going on in New York and the world. That's, mm, that's maybe... My education occurs there. So, for example, now I'm always reading The New Yorker online. I uh, subscribe to The New York Times. I get Vanity Fair. I get um, Condé Nast Traveler. These are all magazines that come in. And so, like, I'll know what place is the place to visit uh, somewhere in the world. Even though I might not be going there, I love to... In, in the case of travel, um, look at how the place was photographed because sometimes sometimes I would have been at the same place but not with that kind of access, meaning I always say I never had a helicopter to uh, look down on the events. So. Yeah, but I, so, 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 so you do uh, sort of, you do your homework, you do an intensive, uh, in, intensive, intensive. research. Uh, yeah, I lo- but I enjoy that. In other words, nobody is... T- I-, I will say this. For example, when Jennifer Lopez was just beginning, uh, you know, to get known, she was at a fashion show, sitting alone, uh, no security around, uh, blah, blah, blah. But I recognized her because I'm, again, always reading uh, magazines and newspaper articles about various up-and-coming People like especially W magazine because they would always uh, choose you know the new starlets or blah blah blah. So mm. I would so I photographed her and actually I think it, it appeared on a magazine cover. She looked so sweet, so innocent. And then everyone, not everyone, but many photographers would always come up to me and they'd say, "Who is that?" And re- realizing that no, they were never going to. 
uh, do their homework. They would just be uh, trying to get someone, you know, jumping out of her car or... Uh-huh. Right. So, I mean, I mean, th th this is an interesting combination because you, you've got a lot of people in the world who will sort of keep up on, 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 on society and celebrity news, but they, they, they wouldn't be involved without seeing in any way in the way that you are. And on the other hand, you've described photographers who, who would sort of be, have access to these people, but who wouldn't do their homework. But as, as someone who sort of sits at home and assiduously prepares and knows what's going on, but at the same time, as someone who is such a private person, is there a part of you that would sort of drag her feet when it comes to going into action? I mean, is there, is there a part of you that says, well, you know, I'd rather, you know, this much socializing, this much kind of, you know, reaching out to people. It's a bit, it's a bit too much for somebody of my temperament. Mm -mm, I know. In fact, I, I would say that I'm very energized by being, let's say, um, at the Metropolitan Museum Galas, you probably would not know this, but, you know, years ago, um, photographers were invited inside, and we would dress for the evening, and I remember I always brought a young man with me who would carry my cameras and be in a tuxedo. Now they put, or I should say, when Anna Wintour took over, she placed the photographers on the outside steps. So if you watch the Metropolitan Museum Gala each year, of course it was didn't take place this year, people would be, the photographers would be on the steps screaming the names of, you know, Beyonce, etc., etc. So um, I would, I loved going to the Met in the past. I loved being in that space. I love being able to move around and take photos of Bianca and Cher and Calvin Klein. It was a, a, like an addiction, I would say. Yeah, yeah. And but 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 are you saying, in effect, that that has changed now that the rules oh, have totally changed? not a, not in effect beyond change. First of all, there were never hundreds of photographers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they Just weren't. The they were, and and also they weren't. They weren't sort of like clinically separated from the from from, exactly. from the subjects the, the way that they are now. Which, exactly. Which actually, I mean, like you know, this brings me to something else that I wanted to ask you, which concerns uh, rules and 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 sort of just like basically uh, uh, formal uh, codes of how to do the kind of job that you're doing. Because I get the feeling when I look at your career that it would not have been possible. Uh, to have this kind of career had you followed some kind of straight and narrow path. In fact, mm -hmm. in fact, when you, when you pioneered the genre of photography for which you became known, there was no path at all, let alone a straight <laughs> and narrow one. You, uh, you are a completely self-made person who proudly, <laughs> and who proudly proclaims, I never had a rich husband. I did not have a patron. I have survived <laughs> on being a photographer without any help ever, ever. Right. Ever, ever, you, and you take no shit from anybody, and the stories of you gaining no. gaining access to events uninvited are the stuff of legend. As are stories of your pushiness, which helped you obtain some of your most famous frames. And I want to actually reference another scene from the documentary, which is for me highly revealing, where you and the film crew want to shoot some footage in a park, and the person at the gate of uh, the park. Yeah. <laughs> 
she yeah. she seems about to lock the place up. Yeah. And she says that you can't shoot there because the park is closed. And yeah. you you respond by saying, and I quote, I know, but you are you are here holding the lock. Do you see anyone else around? End of quote. So <laughs> she ends up letting you in and you shoot your scene. Although this, the scene of you gaining access to the park is much more interesting to me. <laughs> so I love hearing your 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 take. It's so amusing to me, quite frankly. Yeah, that was an example of my realizing why would why shouldn't we be allowed in? See, that would be the first point in my mind. It, it wasn't that we're going to go and eat the caviar on the table. We're just going to use that beautiful space for a few moments. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think like the, the, the way that you sort of interacted with the person who uh, at that moment seemed to be personifying the rule was very, yes. very revealing to me because I think um, it is it is a sort of productive way of looking at it to say that these rules actually only exist to the extent that they are implemented by an, <laughs> by an actual person <laughs> in the here and now. So yeah. if, if we actually focus on the person and not the rules that they claim to represent, we have a chance to go beyond those rules together with them. Mm-hmm. And perhaps it is your ability to see this person rather than the rule that makes you such a remarkable artist in the first place. Oh, so, so I mean, maybe, maybe some general thoughts on rule breaking and its role <laughs> in, your, in your career and in your art? <laughs> well... I think that my favorite, if I can share one story, I was with my friend um, and one of my best friends, Manuel Santelices, who you quoted earlier, and he's a journalist. And we were walking up Madison Avenue. I love to walk on Madison Avenue in the early evening. Not that you asked me that, but that's what I love to do. And I've been working on photographing dreams on sale. And hopefully a publishing house said they were interested and the next day locked down. Okay, so <laughs> a little depressing. But anyway, this was a number of years ago. And um, uh, Lucas Samaras, the world famous artist, was having a private dinner for the patrons of the Whitney when the Whitney was on Madison Avenue. So I was with, again, my very dear friend, was very soft-spoken, who would never do what I did. So we got to the door, and there were young women holding the, ball, you know, the their iPads where they would check in the guests. So I never had done this, but I, I, I still laugh, and I kind of got to see the names, and I think I said, you know, Miss Von Trupp, and they said, please come in, table seventeen. My friend, uh, I think he, he, he couldn't even like open his mouth or close his mouth. He was stunned. But we were both dressed very well. We sat down, and I'll never forget everyone would say at the table, and they were all collectors, who do you collect? Who do you collect? And we had the best evening. And I Didn't you say Hartman? No, I don't think I did. I, I thought that would be pushing it. But w- what I'm also saying to, I think, not I think, to share that I'm totally comfortable in any situation. I didn't feel uncomfortable. I, in fact, I was very amused by it. So if you call that breaking a rule, obviously two people didn't show up. 
It's not that we threw someone away from the table. So I felt completely comfortable, and I really, really, really enjoyed myself. And I think my dear friend enjoyed himself, even though he would never, ever, ever have done that on his own. So uh, the takeaway could be maybe something like this. Be prepared at a moment's notice to break the rules, but not, yes. not just mentally pre prepared, but also prepared in terms of your wardrobe. Uh, yes. Well, I like to think that when I go outside... Uh, in the evening, you know, I'm looking certainly presentable enough to enter the Whitney Museum gala. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, talking about these, uh, talking a little bit more about these, uh, about these uh, special occasions uh, and about your style of, of, of uh, you know, inserting yourself into special occasions. Uh, in the documentary, I couldn't help but notice that this style. Uh, seem to draw a lot of flack, if not, in fact, resentment <laughs> from yeah. specifically the male commentators in the in the documentary. Whereas most female commentators seem to have a lot of respect for your MO and consequent achievements. So would you like to comment on this somewhat gendered discrepancy? You know, it's funny. I never thought about it as gender uh, discrepancy, but I thought about, for example, one female photographer who obviously was never having a film made about her, and she was very catty, if I might say. And I thought, hmm, you know, I think it shows up the person. It reveals the person's uh, insecurities because I could say to you, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. Don't be bitchy. None of the men who were interviewed, like one um, was the um, a, a gallery dealer who said that she's more in, intrusive, I think, than a paparazzi. And I thought that was an interesting comment, actually. Um, and he's he's also a personal friend. But no, there are only Patrick McMullen who said about, and that's the truth. Uh, as I said to you even earlier, I could be speaking to him, and he's quite a successful photographer, but if I saw someone, I would move away from him immediately to take the picture. Right, right. So, I, I, yeah. So I, I, mm -hmm. I don't agree with you. Well, that's, uh, that's good to know. So it, it seems that... No, I, no, but I'd rather hear why you said that well, and who you were referring okay, to. Okay, so my, my, my impression, to be honest, was that, I mean, the, the narrative that sort of crystallized in my mind was that uh, the women who were, who were sort of commenting uh, on, your, on your career and on your achievements probably having gone through more hardship to get where they were in a sort of in male dominated fields they had more sympathy for 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 a woman being quote unquote pushy in order to in order to get uh, to the point where she wanted to be in this uh, in this environment and in this career, whereas men may be being more intimidated by 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 a woman being forward in that way. Are you thinking of someone specific? Or? No, it was just a general impression that I walked away with from the from the documentary. Mm, I, I'm not going to agree or disagree. Uh, I don't think it. No. Got it. Got it. <laughs> 
the, the, next, uh, the next question that I wanted to ask you takes me a little bit further afield from your, from your uh, art and from your personality and more towards you as the New Yorker. As I said before, I mean, you are an iconic photographer and an iconic individual, but also an iconic New Yorker. Both of your parents are New Yorkers. You were born in yeah. Manhattan in the late yeah. 30s and you have, yeah. you have lived there ever since. And yes. as Montgomery Fraser put it, Rose has survived New York and all the incarnations and all the people who have come and gone. She has always been on the scene. Now, in a way, we wow. can, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so when we, when we look at that scene, uh, in a way, we can read the history of fashion and culture in New York as one of centripetal and centrifugal forces, by which I mean a kind of seasonal history in which specific scenes or milieus converge only in order to disperse again when their time is over. And while you, Rose, while you, while you primarily portray individuals, usually these individuals are embedded in very particular and often very intimate scenes or milieus. Uh, you have chronicled uh, seasons of convergence in New York, such as the annual Met Galas that you were talking about. Yes. And of course, the heyday of Studio 54. But you have also been in New York through seasons of dispersal and disintegration. Uh, for instance, epidemics such as AIDS and, uh, and the current coronavirus. Uh, so um, I was going to ask you if you could walk us through this New York history a little bit. Uh, are there comparisons that you would make between the coronavirus outbreak and other previous New York seasons? And if the coronavirus has inaugurated a new season of loss in New York, how do you think the city will look in its wake? I'm terrified to even imagine how the city will look because, as I said to you earlier, many people who have uh, financial acumen have all left the city. Now, we hope they're going to return. But the notion, again, of all the uh, restaurants, theater, museums, you know, I'm, I was in a show that opened called Studio 54 Night Magic at the Brooklyn Museum. It will reopen, I was told, but I can't even imagine how this will work. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything, I mean, uh, out of your experience of New York, I mean, you've been through so many ups and downs in the city. Is there anything even remotely comparable to what's happening today? No, nothing. Well, certainly during the AIDS epidemic, as everyone who writes will say, you know, we lost some of the most brilliant minds, whether they might be um, in the world of ballet, in the world of theater, in the world of etc., etc. But I, I would not compare AIDS epidemic to this. We are locked down. We are terrified. Everyone is terrified. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge difference. Do you, uh, and and the, the kind of work that you're doing, the kind of thing that, that, that has become your hallmark, of course, is like absolutely impossible under these circumstances. Totally. Yeah. You know, I'll take uh, short walks down to the river, Hudson River, which is not far from my uh, apartment. And uh, the people wearing masks, I do not, I am not attracted to. <laughs> And it's not something that inspires you to want to take a No, break. and then, but I started taking reflections in a puddle or some window with a, 
vases and but someone was a little bit I, I have some very direct friends and one woman said you know you do much better with the you know the people you photograph yeah duh yeah are we going to compare Cindy Crawford posing with Naomi Campbell to uh, a building edge I mean <laughs> Uh, talking about celebrities, uh, um, actually, um, uh, in terms of celebrity culture overall, uh, you are, of course, a pioneer of behind-the-scenes celebrity culture. You were going backstage and creating celebrities or contributing to the rise of celebrities at a time when... I was the only one, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, where reality TV was only a dream and social media, but a no, dream... No, no, but I want to make the point. I wasn't the only... Yeah. Backstage. No, absolutely. Absolutely. No. And uh, you and people like you who pioneered this work, I mean, uh, thanks to or because of, I don't know how to put it, because of or thanks to your work, we have reached a point where everything has gone backstage and everyone has become a potential yes. celebrity. And yes. of course, we are reminded of Andy Warhol, whom you also photographed, and his yes. prophetic saying that in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. So this is a future that you and your fellow pioneers helped to bring about. So how do you evaluate this, 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 this future? And what is your place? Oh, I can't bear. I just can't bear it. I can't bear the fact that, you know, you, here I have been a photographer for over 40 years. I think I once took a selfie. I, that's it. I cannot bear watching people out and about, um, photographing food, photographing themselves, doing, it seems so false to me. It seems so really stupid. I feel like the, the level of, of intelligence has dropped to an all-time low. And <laughs> well, you, you, you're not painting a very plat flattering picture, but do, no, but it's honest. And do, do you uh, uh, would you then not agree with me drawing a kind of gene genealogical line between your work and the kind of Instagram uh, uh, obsession that's going on right now? No. So wh where do you think? So why do you think that uh, that observation would not be correct? I think what I. What I and others, let's say maybe there were 10 other photographers who did similar work, very few females, mostly males, as you commented upon. I don't know. I think the culture has just gone downhill steadily, you know, as uh, personified by the Kardashians. Uh, on pain of death, I have never watched one of the programs featuring these people who I, I think they're from another universe. I, I, I don't... Am I hearing you correctly in that the main difference is a qualitative difference between the celebrities, uh, let's say, in the 70s or the 80s and today? Is that the main totally. difference? Totally. But you're talking about, you know, I think you're talking about reality TV and... Uh, that. Well, I guess I'm just talking a little bit about sort of the democratization of uh, the, 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 the process of becoming and being a celebrity. And I, I, I tie it to your work in a way because you could, I mean, a photo by you could make and has made 
uh, regular people or sort of, you know, kind of people who are maybe just hangers on at some of these parties look as glamorous as the people who were the main attractions. So in a, in a way, uh, do, you, do, you see, do, you see, do you see my line of thinking here? I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, if I was a person like that who had been photographed by Rose, who made me look so glamorous and I came out like looking like a celebrity... I might as well sort of launch myself as a kind of reality TV style celebrity. Yeah, but I wasn't photographing any people who, <laughs> there was no reality TV. So I, I'm mm. not going along with what you're saying at all. I mean, if someone was in a photo, I hated that. In fact, <laughs> if, if people would kind of uh, drift over to the edge of the photograph, you know, and throw their faces in, uh, basically my lens, which I just hated, and I didn't want them there at all. And I think when you look at my pictures, you're basically looking at who I wanted to photograph, not some person. Yeah. Because that really bothered me, in fact. When yeah. I see a, 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 no end. Right. No end. Right. No, I, I'm definitely editing in my, obviously, I didn't have um, uh, JPEGs, etc. And I had a normal film, <laughs> a regular camera, 35 millimeter, and it was just another story. No, I didn't, I don't think you're taking it to another level that I don't think is... True at all. Got it. So you're 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 washing your hands off uh, celebrity oh, culture, okay. celebrity culture as it exists in the 21st century. Oh, got it. I I, I don't think there is culture. <laughs> well, maybe that is one of the reasons that you turned to taking photos of display models. Because the next photo, the next question that I wanted to ask you is about your new project, your newest sort of series that you touched upon earlier, Dreams on Sale. Uh, yeah. which uh, this uh, series of photos uh, revolves around basically impressionistic shots of display windows, shots in which you simultaneously capture the models within the windows and the outside world as reflected in the window glass. So yes, for, for me... Mannequins, they're not models. The mannequins, thank you. It's a very big difference. But somebody said, you know, all those models who I photographed were the creme de la creme. They were super, super models. Uh, they could uh, walk on a runway and show the clothes in such a way that made you so desirous of acquiring that um, gown or whatever. And after that, the models became interchangeable. And I would say so boring. Some of them it would look to me like they were on some major drug, which would knock them out, not not energize them. So that's the first thing. And then the other is that I'm not going to the fashion shows anymore. The last, the last one was Carolina Herrera, who her business has now been taken over by a young designer. Um, she had a magnificent fashion show and the Museum of Modern Art Gardens. Uh, it was just unforgettable. And everyone was there who was anybody. And I was thrilled to be there as a friend of the designer. 
but no, I don't do any shows anymore because, again, hundreds and hundreds of photographers are there mm, pushing and shoving. I will say that when I did the shows, they everyone knew that I would sit sit on the ground because the other photographers had 500 millimeter lenses or more. So they would stand behind. So it was kind of divided like this, no matter where we went. <laughs> so, uh, and it was very hard work, but it was very exciting. So I think what I want to say to you, the excitement has gone out. And the shows aren't not anywhere like they were when an Isaac Misrahi or Todd Olden and Halston had shows. I mean, they were just breathtaking, breathtaking. So do you think that uh, in that case, it sounds a little bit to me like your, your, your focus in this new series on the display mannequins is a kind of like a reaction to what has happened to the to the fashion scene in in New York City. So you're in in choosing the subject, you are rejecting something else. Uh, so is this sort of more like a kind of a, a reaction, a, a negative gesture, or is there something also sort of something positive that draws you to the subject of these mannequins? Oh no, I you know I spent two years. Obviously not every day, but for example, I might walk on Madison Avenue and look in every window. I know the obviously the design where the designers are, so I might stop at Michael Kors or Ralph Lauren and look to see what they're showing. They might not have a window that even strikes me. So that would be one thing. But no, I wasn't trying to reject anything, but I was definitely... Um, I'm very attracted to window display. For me, these are fantastic artists who create environments and also, again, make you desire what's inside. Like outside is hell and inside is heaven. <laughs> and they come. And to, they, they is limbo. <laughs> and they come to so 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 so. Uh, our, my 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 uh, fellow. Picked faculty member Christoph is going to love you talking about limbo because limbo. He he actually wrote a full book on limbo. Oh it, really? It, is limbo then the moment where the inside of the the inside of the display and the outside world the, in the reflection where they collide in the glass of the of the of the window display? Uh, I was thinking more of limbo that uh, I, the passerby, and everyone else is not inside getting the, and usually they can't because they're showing, I mean, in the windows that I'm looking at, they're showing extremely high-priced garments. Might be an alligator coat, you know, for $20,000. Um, but the windows are there to bring you into the store. So while you're looking at them, you're in limbo. Right, right. And, and often you might stay there because you might not have the guts to actually enter the store itself. Exactly, exactly. Because, yes, uh, very often, uh, and now you probably know, there's a security guard at every store because there are a lot of robberies taking place in those boutiques. It's just horrible. But but in, in my case, um, I have about... Um, 100 images now that I really do like. And as I said, um, my book agent had gone to a major 
publishing company. And the editor said, I love them. And the very, they were going to have a meeting. And the very next day? A few days later with the publisher. They said, oh, it was uh, postponed. Yeah, indefinitely postponed because of, the, because of the coronavirus situation. But I will make this point. Think about it. Many of those stores are no longer going to even exist. And the images, and, uh, and I thought about this a lot very recently, that they, they may be the last coverage of the most spectacular windows, you know, Bergdorf Goodman, Saks Fifth Avenue, Dolce Gabbana, etc. I mean, the best of the best. I will say that. But the other point is, someone looked at one of my photos. You know, I put them online and send them to associates. I love their feedback. And this one woman who is a painter said, where was that party? <laughs> and I said, are you mad? <laughs> These are mannequins in the window. And she could barely believe me. So I thought that was great. And that's the way I photographed them. They do look very real. So you do bring you do bring sort of your your instinctive kind of feel for the party, even yes. even to the lifeless subjects in the display. Yes, window. and almost making them come alive. I will say that even I'm shocked. I I look at them and I think, my God, they don't look like still figures. Well, they yeah, and I and I don't think it's just these still figures or mannequins, but you, you do you and your body of work, you really do bring alive this these social scenes, the cultural scenes of New York, the, the, the inner the, the, the sort of the inner workings, the inner passions of these individuals who participate in these scenes, uh, like nobody else that I've ever seen the work of. So uh, thank that, you. so uh, on that flattering note uh, I want to. I want to try a graceful exit out of this interview. Please, um, <laughs> we've been speaking for yeah, um, more than an hour. More than an hour. Minutes. Yeah. So, so thank you very much. You're most welcome for taking the time to talk with us today. I'm incredibly happy to have conducted this interview, not just because of its intrinsic value to document your thoughts, but also because it gives me the chance to record a conversation with a very, very dear friend. And I can't wait to see you in person again as, as soon as possible and to hopefully have you speak and exhibit Maybe Dreams exactly. on Sale exactly with Pigt here in Paris. I look forward to it. May I say this to but you know what I would love, excuse me, when you do post this, I would like to hear comments. That interests me a lot. If somebody is going to be mean and bitchy or someone is going to be uh, rather complimentary. And just to say, being a female photographer in the chiffon jungle ain't easy kids and uh you heard it here so everybody listening in right now please don't spare your comments and uh, uh let let rose know what you thought about the interview and what you think about her work which you can do right at the bottom of this video on our youtube page oh rosehartman.com absolutely absolutely so with that i want to conclude our very first pick portrait um, thank you to everybody. Thank you for, to everybody for tuning thank in. Thank you for all the engineers who worked on this project in the background. 
give them a break. Invite them for a glass of wine. We know there's at least a dozen behind. We'll do at least a dozen. Of course, we run a big, very, very complex operation here at the Paris Institute. But tight, a tight ship. A tight ship. So. We will challenge you with another episode of Pick Portraits soon. Of course, our biggest hope remains to come face to face with you again at one of our live events. But until that can happen, please take good care of yourselves and you too, Rose. Thank you.